Hey team, I'm Ash Kelly, and you're listening to I Am Madeline, the first in a series of important stories we'll be bringing you under the umbrella of Umbrella Podcasting. Let's get started. Madeline is a very likable person. She walks around with a smile on her face, wearing bright clothing, and when she enters a room, the whole place lights up. And she spends a lot of her time volunteering. She makes sure seniors get cards during the holidays, teaches people how to garden, and she's especially fond of mentoring young volunteers. She tells me it gives her purpose, and it's something she talks about a lot. One of my volunteer activities, which you can't go into the details of, but, you know, between the jigs and the reels, I finally, after like 18 years, got them to understand the core of the problem was scarcity, that the population they were interacting with had a measure of poverty that they didn't understand. And they had like a massive amount of leftovers. And they said, well, what if we shared the leftovers? And I created an avenue of, of flow for that. And I knew it was hard for me. And I I knew it was hard for others, but I had a senior and she came up to me um, and she she pulled me aside, like super embarrassed, super shy. But I'd I'd been doing this long enough that I built trust. Reputation and trust is super important. Walk your talk, you know. And so she she whispered to me and she said, "I, I want you to pass along thanks. I want to thank you and I want to pass along thanks. My fridge was empty and now it's full middle of the month she had nothing in her fridge and people kept pulling me aside for the next few weeks every time i i was around and they were like oh i was trying to decide between medicine and food and i don't have to this month and it burns me how is this okay how is this okay the last six months i've been angry a lot (laughs) and i sing to myself the song from the sound of music like how can you solve a problem like maria (laughs) you know the part of it that goes how can you hold a moonbeam in your hand because i feel like communication is like a moonbeam and in, in that part of the story it's you know two different frames of reference not understanding each other In this scene, the nuns just don't know what to do with the lovable Maria, who's more likely to follow her heart than follow the rules. The Sound of Music is based loosely on a true story. In real life, though, Maria's mother died of pneumonia when she was two. Her father decided to travel the world and left her with a family member. He would only see Maria occasionally, until he died when she was nine years old, leaving Maria an orphan under the care of an abusive uncle. Madeline has a lot in common with the Hollywood version of Maria, the sunny disposition, huge heart, love for people, and singing. But they also have their difficult childhoods in common. It was a poem my dad wrote. It pretty much sums up my whole childhood. It was this odd mix of who I chose to be and what personality presets I had and the environment that I was born into, which was incredibly unsafe. You know, my, my life was in peril at all times in my household. I was so shocked to see hear that he really knew me. And it said, um, my child dances like a feather, always singing all the time, runs outside in snowy weather, cold and snow she thinks are fine. If we sometimes aren't together, 
always she's my valentine that's who i was as a kid that was exactly who i was as a kid <laughs> i just loved to bounce around in the snow and in spite of the fact that my home life was horrific i've always sort of been that person but my dad who was a super scary dude he could also be incredibly kind, as I think many people in those kinds of situations will experience. It's not all one thing or the other. And uh, he wrote me this poem. And it's not the first time he did what he did with this. He, he painted a beautiful picture of me, put it up in my room and took it. He wrote this poem and it was a big deal between us because, you know, with my dyslexia, he started calling me stupid at four because I didn't know how to read at four. Um, which is, of course, an unrealistic expectation if they didn't have dyslexia, but it became worse with, you know, what wasn't understood at the time to be dyslexia. And when he sort of, when I arrived home one day to find that gone from my wall and, and know that I couldn't even ask about it, it wasn't safe to ask. I had memorized it, I think, knowing that he would probably do that. Here's something else that Madeline and Maria have in common. Severe illness completely altered the trajectory of their lives. Captain Von Trapp's first wife, Agatha, had died from the fever. The illness left one of their daughters too sick to return to school, and so Maria was sent to help out. As a child, Madeline says she remembers having one of those rock-hard immune systems, only ever getting the flu maybe once before she got mono for the first time. I will tell you, there's a funny story from when I was 12. I was sick so much with the first round of mono. There was two classes of, I think that was grade six. There was two classes of us. And my class told the other class that I was dead. Madeline is in her 50s now. So obviously mononucleosis didn't kill her. But her rock hard immune system was done for. And she never really got better. Instead, she developed some of the most misunderstood and stigmatized chronic diseases in the entire world. And now she's planning for her assisted death in just a few weeks time. Madeline has myalgic encephalomyelitis and fibromyalgia. ME is said to be twice as common as MS. A lot of people have had it, from Lady Gaga to historians suspect Charles Darwin, from Marie Curie to Stevie Nicks. It is not considered a deadly disease, though people have died in severe untreated cases and when they overexert themselves. Madeline's medically assisted death won't take place until the middle of July because of a mandatory 90-day waiting period. But the reason she's having to do this in the first place is because she's running out of money for treatments and Madeline's bank account is currently set to run out about a month before that 90-day waiting period is up. At that point, her naturopathic IV injections would have to stop and she believes her body would crash into such a state she would likely die anyways. In Canada, we call this MAID, medical assistance in dying, and MAID doctors have told her she qualifies based on her quality of life alone, but increasing those naturopathic treatments is all it would take to give her a quality of life that might mean she doesn't qualify for medically assisted death. And her illness has deteriorated to the point where she would qualify under the criterion of a foreseeable natural death. However, new legislation in Canada has removed that criterion, which makes our assisted dying laws some of the most liberal in the world, while critics say they lack essential protections for people with disabilities and mental health issues. And we aren't going to shy away from that topic in future episodes. For now, I think it's important to note that Madeline has lived in poverty most of her life on government disability assistance. She's been legislated into poverty. If Madeline and other people who can't work were given a living income, imagine what they might be able to do for themselves. 
In the meantime, Madeline's chosen to spend her last few weeks with you, passing on her wisdom and knowledge and hoping her story will help make a difference. And she's reflecting on what happened to her grandmother, who she suspects also had Emmy. It's mirrored what I saw happen to my grandmother. My grandmother died when I was eight, that's some 40 something years ago or so. And I saw her a month before she died. I saw her the summers, like the few summers before she died. I lived with her for a summer. And how she deteriorated, like visibly, I am mirroring. Like what I call the Stay Puff Marshmallow Girl, the ever expanding Stay Puff Marshmallow Girl. Like she ate hardly anything. It just got bigger and bigger. She wore compression socks. So I have to assume it's the same crazy edema that I have the 12 pound swing in a day, 50 pounds of water retention, you know. And, but with her, and this is why I think, you know, this is not a rare disease. It's classified sometimes as a rare disease, but I don't think it is. I think it's misclassified depending on what specialist lap you land in. So in her late teens, she landed at a heart specialist because her heart was going all over the place. But they never named her heart disease, nonspecific heart disease. What the hell is that? Mitochondrial disorder will send your body, your heart rate all over the place as it searches for energy, as it tries to force nutrients and oxygen into the cell to produce energy. I have had my heart rate go from a 114 down to 49 and just dropped dead down there. And it was the worst, I think it was probably a heart attack. Um, and so I, I don't just suspect it, watching myself deteriorate the way, and she didn't have access to the internet. They were very not talk back to the doctor, you know, and so I know how she died. She went dancing the night before she died. She did what um, uh, I've had heard referred to by a doctor as uh, borrowing energy from the mob. She went out dancing with her husband at a social club they belong to. And I even have her skirt. It's exactly a skirt I would wear, this big, bright, flowered, you know, full length skirt, beautiful. And she would have wanted to talk to her friends. Her friends loved her. I mean, she, this was a woman who, you know, when we went for a walk, people like, uh, we've talked a little bit about this. They would pour out of their houses to chat with her as we were walking. It drove me crazy. So everybody would have wanted to talk to her. And then the next day, so you can work outside of your energy envelope, but the cost of doing so to the body can be catastrophic. And not just, oh, I feel terrible, but I'm having difficulty getting up to go to the washroom. Like, it, it's bad. And so I think she may have just wanted to get up to eat something or, you know, just something simple. And she was by herself. And I, I think her mitochondria just went, I can't. It's a bit like if you've got a plane with one engine broken and then another one goes and you drop out of the sky like a stone. The heart can only handle so much. And so it's classified as a heart attack, but it's not, I don't believe it was a proper heart. Like if the mob orders a hit, is the hitman the one responsible or is it the mob that ordered the hit? Doctors involved in medically assisted dying here in British Columbia tell Madeline she's not the only patient with myalgic encephalomyelitis to come through their doors. And that means people are dying of a completely treatable common illness because they can't access basic treatments. It's just a, a brutal practicality about what's happening and what's coming. And does it have to happen? No, it 100% does not have to happen. Um, GPs, specialists, dentists, massage therapists, physiotherapists, TCM, naturopaths, like and on and on and on and on and on. None of them are yelling about it. None of them are 
being horrified and pursuing and don't get me started about the the politicians but they didn't even bring it up in the election leadership debate talked about everything but disabled people <laughs> and it's because deep down in our society they believe it's our fault What's happening to Madeline is not her fault. She got a virus as a child and she stayed sick. Myalgic encephalomyelitis often occurs as a post-viral illness, but there are other ways to lapse into it. We know so little about this family of diseases, but the need for more knowledge is urgent because all over the world, post-viral syndrome is popping up in COVID-19 patients, so-called long haulers, and experts believe they too have myalgic encephalomyelitis. Symptoms run the gamut from shortness of breath to heart palpitations to extreme fatigue. Here's Washington reporter Mike Gooding. There was also talk Wednesday of long COVID, a syndrome that affects many people who have generally recovered from the acute effects of coronavirus infection, but who don't fully recover for weeks or months. Dr. Anthony Fauci said Wednesday that 35 to 45 percent of patients suffer from what he called incapacitating symptoms, including profound fatigue, muscle aches and temperature dysregulation. The scientific community arguably turned its back on myalgic encephalomyelitis more than 50 years ago. But it's always been true that every single one of us is at risk of experiencing what Madeline's going through. And for people of color, it's even more common to be disbelieved by doctors and told that your pain is all in your head, that you're just lazy and need to try harder. And so what's happening to me, I can only imagine based on the research and understanding is amplified dramatically for women of color and people of color. So to have all this happening within this condition and then to understand that the COVID-19 has affected disproportionately people of color in this country because they tend to be the frontline workers. And so they have tended to be exposed more often to this frontline at cashiers and um, home support and a whole bunch of things. And so then you're going to have people of color, uh, of color being disproportionately afflicted with the COVID-19 long haul syndrome and the post-viral syndrome as well. So it, it must be addressed. Myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia. These are all diseases in the same family of mitochondrial disorders, meaning at a cellular level, the powerhouses within our cells just can't produce energy properly. A tendency to refer to these diseases as chronic fatigue syndrome dismisses the experience of those suffering it. The term has been problematic, as has the doctor who coined it since the 1980s. And I'm a big Golden Girls fan, but I didn't know Dorothy suffered from myalgic encephalomyelitis. Dr. Bud? Yes? You probably don't remember me, but uh, you told me I wasn't sick. Do you remember? You told me I was just getting old. I'm sorry, I really don't remember. Maybe you're getting old. <laughs> That's a little joke. Well, I tell you, Dr. Bud, I really am sick. I have chronic fatigue syndrome. That is a real illness. You can check with the Center for Disease Control. Oh, well, I'm sorry about that. Well, I'm glad. At least I know I have something. God, these ladies were so ahead of their time. And here's where she gets real. Dr. Bud, I came to you sick. Sick and scared. And you dismissed me. You didn't have the answer. And instead of saying, I'm sorry, I don't know what's wrong with you, you made me feel crazy, like, like I had made it all up. You dismissed me. 
They made me feel like a, a child, a, a fool, a neurotic who was wasting your precious time. I suspect had I been a man, I might have been taken a little bit more seriously and not told to go to a hairdresser. Look, I am not going to sit here anymore. Shut up, Lois. Dorothy's probably right about being a woman. Not that men don't get myalgic encephalomyelitis, but it does impact far more females. And in the 1970s, one harmful, irresponsible paper published in the British Medical Journal convinced most of the world that these outbreaks of ME were in fact waves of hysteria. Unfortunately, somehow the resulting stigma became quickly entrenched. Saw someone collecting the other day for ME. Not MS. Not the crippling wasting disease. Oh no, ME. That's the one where don't feel like going to work today. <laughs> oh. ME. I apologise to anyone who suffers from ME. You're not going to have a go, are you? No, I do apologise because I've since learned that it is a real disease. I thought it was psychosomatic, but it's physiological. And it's a very misunderstood disease as well, so it's easy to ridicule it. I suppose it's because the symptoms aren't apparent. It's not like losing a limb. They go, we're tired. We go, I've decided now is a good time to read from one of the patient case files we have from the earliest suspected ME outbreak in Los Angeles, 1934. Case 105 describes a woman who at first was just tired, and then she had diarrhea lasting a month, a fever, and she starts to develop pains all over her body, in her shoulders and joints. Eventually, she's hospitalized with severe lumbar pain, and all of her limbs are immobilized. This is over the period of just a few weeks in June. She develops severe muscle tenderness, pain, and severe light sensitivity. There are weeks-long muscle spasms and headaches, and at one point in November, she completely loses sense of where her hands and feet are, and her nails stop growing. The report describes severe edema, that swelling that Madeline described both her and her grandmother having, as well as heart issues. This report was written just two years after the patient fell ill, and we don't know what the rest of her life was like. Many people recovered, even in the early 20th century. And why some people get more sick than others is still a mystery, though there are many theories. But people with severe ME can have dozens of severe symptoms and be completely and, bedridden. And it sounds like a mollycoddling society that accepts this new disease that wasn't around 100 years ago, you know, you don't, you don't see it. Of course, ME was almost certainly around 100 years ago. Here's a few examples. I was going to drop us into 1934 Los Angeles, when California was in the midst of a polio epidemic. Nearly 200 doctors, nurses, and orderlies got so sick and stayed sick for so long, the State Department of Health sent an investigator in. And we got what is now considered to be the earliest documentation of an ME outbreak. We now know ME can be caused by physical and environmental triggers. It may be genetic at times. And not everyone who gets ME has had a notable virus. And the more I understand about it, the more I wonder if the illness is as old as the immune system. And then there's this radio lab episode about U.S. President Woodrow Wilson and the Paris Peace Conferences at Versailles that I can't get out of my head. You're listening, listening to Radio Lab. The essence of the story is he gets sick, likely with the flu. It was January 1919, and he doesn't get better. He comes out on the other side cognitively impaired, he's slurring, he's tired, he's not himself, and he lacks the sort of fight and vigor he was famous for before he got sick. And all of this, according at least to some biographers, irrevocably changes history. It's a good episode. Check it out.
But did Wilson have M.E., which doesn't get assigned anything resembling that name until 1955? The disease as we know it gets tangled up with a host of other post-viral syndromes and diseases that involve muscles, the nervous system, the brain, and spinal cord, like acute flaccid myelitis, a serious condition that causes facial drooping and sometimes such difficulty breathing people require ventilation, or Julian Barr syndrome, a painful disorder of the nervous system, both of which COVID-19 patients are also exhibiting, and the latter of which some historians and scientists believe may have afflicted U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt after he contracted a virus at 39 years old in 1921. In the early 20th century, polio epidemics were common, and Roosevelt's diagnosis of poliomyelitis as the cause of his initial illness has been widely reported. And while we will likely never know what led to early outbreaks of what is believed to be ME, many were given a diagnosis of polio, or so-called polio-like disorder, or atypical polio. And as we've pointed out, viruses have been around a long time, so probably ME has too. But it's at this point doctors start paying attention. For two years, my vacation has been postponed by polio. But I remember what vacations are like. And maybe I'll have one again next summer. In the winter of 1933, California began to see an unusual rise in these maybe polio cases. Unusual, because up to this point, the illness was considered to be very much seasonal and peaked predictably during the summer. Are you under 40? Lots of people are. Feeling fine and healthy? Don't press your luck too far. Hospitals were quickly overrun. The deputy health officer of L.A. County made an appeal for more training and more medical schools, saying patients were overflowing into hallways as more than 100 cases of polio came in each day to the L.A. General Hospital, and the frontline workers became exhausted. Ladies and gentlemen, you are looking at the business end of an iron lung. That sound that you'll hear is the air being forced into the lungs so that the patient can breathe. And then nearly 200 doctors, nurses, and orderlies got sick in the now infamous L.A. hospital outbreak. Newspaper articles and epidemiological reports from 1934 show the illness seemed to deviate from polio in many ways. The sickness seemed especially transmissible for poliomyelitis and spread quickly in hospitals and households, impacting mostly women. And while polio left millions paralyzed, it mostly impacted young children. And this time, older kids and young adults were getting sick, generally without paralysis. And they weren't getting better. They reported disability setting in after the virus passed, suffering severe pain, vomiting, headaches, muscle twitching and tenderness, sore throat, nausea, constipation, fevers, stiffness, cough, diarrhea, vertigo, sensitivity to light, touch, taste, and smell, and chills. And interviews two years on would lead to more symptoms being added to their list, including insomnia, depression, easy fatigue, ataxia, which is a serious nerve condition that causes stroke-like symptoms, numbness and tingling, hypersensitive skin, menstrual disturbances, and then even those who did get better would experience relapses. After health officials took note in California, a number of records show similar occurrences all over the world. In Switzerland, outbreaks among the military and in hospitals left people with similar symptoms. In Iceland, notable outbreaks occurred among high school cohorts. In Adelaide, Australia, doctors noted the heat made things especially difficult for patients who were relapsing more in the summer. 
The 1930s and 40s were plagued with outbreaks and so-called summers of fear. But the 1950s brought polio vaccines and a hard push to get everyone inoculated. In just a matter of time, polio will go. The number of cases were cut in half by the vaccination. Science is working on our behalf for its elimination. But believe it or Even not, as polio numbers declined, the mystery illness persisted, and a handful of outbreaks occurred in the United Kingdom before almost 300 people, mostly doctors and nurses, got sick at the London Royal Free Hospital in 1955. Their most common early symptoms were reported as malaise and headaches, often associated with disproportionate depression and emotional instability. In the majority of cases, people recovered, some even within weeks, but severe disability persisted for others. Much of what we know about this incident comes from Dr. Donald Acheson, who first coined the term benign myalgic encephalomyelitis after studying these cases. And the name he chose was just as controversial as those that have followed, as Acheson's peers criticized the label. They argued the disease was not benign, not always myalgic, as in involving the muscles and not necessarily encephalomyelitis, meaning there was no confirmation of swelling between the brain and the spine. Atchison defended the mouthful by saying he hoped the addition of the word benign would relay the low mortality rate of the illness. Atchison didn't believe the disease was psychological. He repeatedly presented evidence of damage to the central nervous system, muscular, and lymphatic systems. There were several cases of depression and anxiety among the hospital staff who were sick. The reports say one person experienced schizophrenia, and another, such terrible depression, they died by suicide. But he noted one quarter of patients had no psychiatric reactions and hypothesized those that had been observed were likely pre-existing. While Acheson acknowledged the psychological impacts of the disease in front of him, he argued steadfastly the illness was not to be dismissed as mass hysteria. For the next 25 years, that debate continued to simmer on the back burner, until a young up-and-coming psychiatrist gunning for his PhD at Oxford University saw an opportunity. Colin McEvity's friends considered him somewhat of a genius with an encyclopedic knowledge. They would quiz him for fun. They described him as mild-mannered, modest, unflappable, witty, and someone who didn't tend to take sides. Yet he's credited with at least exploiting one of the greatest divisions in medical history. He and Professor Bill Beard twice published papers dismissing the patients at the London Hospital, the first in 1970 calling it a reconsideration of Acheson's work. The pair theorized patients were not physically ill, that they had created the illness in their heads and that's why they seemed sick. He said the justification for this conclusion was in the numbers. Well, specifically one number. More women were sick than men, and thus mass hysteria was the more likely culprit. Endemic mass hysteria. They said it was a common occurrence within girls' schools and factories where women worked as well as their boarding houses. McCavity is not fondly remembered within the ME community. His initial publication on the hospital outbreak was only four pages long and based entirely on case reports from other physicians 25 years earlier. He never once met, yet alone examined, a single patient before dismissing them. One Canadian doctor says he interviewed McEvity in his home in 1988 and asked why he had published such an irresponsible take on the situation. 
By this account, McKevity replied repeatedly and without remorse that it was just an easy way to get a PhD. So why not? It's a figure of speech, but the funding dried up overnight and researchers were discouraged from pursuing studies in the area of ME, and the stigma in pop culture and workplaces would only become more solidified over time. You know, someday, Dr. Bud, you're going to be on the other side of the table. And as angry as I am, and as angry as I always will be, I still wish you a better doctor than you were to me. That clip aired more than 30 years ago. It's the same age as I am. And all these years later, all those same attitudes discounting the experiences of sick women and some men still persist. Just ask Madeline about a recent trip to her doctor's office. Bless his heart, because he seems like a very nice man. But, you know, he honestly thinks he understands myologic encephalitis, like I, I, a.k.a. CFS. He honestly thinks he understands fibromyalgia. And that becomes a problem rather than just sort of going, oh, you know, I don't really understand. No, I wasn't trained about this at all at any part of my education. No, our medical community is not researching it properly, hasn't developed tests to assess it. And, and so what that does is it creates this situation where he, he, honest to God, says to me, well, what your conditions are subjective. <laughs> like, no, they're not. They're objective. I am objectively struggling to go to the washroom. I am objectively panting for air with simple activities. These are objective things happening. What's subjective is how I choose to cope with it, that I hide the measure of pain and distress I am and most of the times, and I'm reaching a point where I can't hide it anymore, and that I'm running out of brave and strong. Madeline's challenges extend well beyond the doctor's office. Most governments in the world don't value people with disabilities enough to ensure they can afford food, housing, dignity, and medical care. Madeline has been hemorrhaging debt for three decades. And she's just playing out of money to keep going. Despite her self-advocacy at the highest levels of government, any change that might come could be too late to save her. But she hopes her story will help you understand how the system that promised to care for her has failed. How it's failing millions of people like her and will fail the wave of long-haul COVID patients coming up behind her. There's so much more to Madeline's story, and the stories of the so-called missing millions living with mitochondrial disorders, including the deadly effect of misogyny and racism in healthcare, and we won't shy away from the ethical implications of people choosing medically-assisted death because of poverty, not because of terminal illness. We'll cover it all on future episodes of I Am Madeline. Madeline has told a few friends about what's going on, and they don't want her to die, so they've started fundraising in the hopes of keeping her alive and pushing for policy change that would see treatments covered by provincial health care. If you'd like to help out, just search Madeline's Miracle on GoFundMe. Head to our website, IamMadeline.com, for transcripts of each episode and information on how you can support us. I Am Madeline is produced on the unceded lands of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Thanks to Lee Rosevere for the music and PBS for the news clips. This series is co-produced by Kelvin Gawley and myself, Ash Kelly. <laughs>